Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. All right, let's get into our sermon today. We'll be starting with the last part of the 25th chapter of Genesis and covering the 26th chapter of Genesis and the 27th chapter. So let me just begin by familiarizing uh, us today with what those chapters are about. In the last half of the 25th chapter, we have the story of the birth of Jacob and Esau, twins, the terrible twins. And it goes immediately from the account of their birth into them being grown young men and the famous story of the forfeiting of the birthright. We'll develop that just a little bit more in a minute. We get into the 26th chapter, and it almost replays an episode from the life of Abraham when Abraham had dealings with Abimelech, and they made a treaty, and uh, Abraham had initially hidden the fact that Sarah was his wife from King Abimelech because he was afraid that because his wife was a very attractive lady that uh, the king would want his wife and kill him to get her. Now, we see this whole thing almost replayed out in the life of uh, Isaac as uh, Isaac takes Rebekah into into this land and he, fearing King Abimelech and fearing the men of the country, lies about Rebekah being his wife and says, this is his sister. And when Abimelech discovers the truth, like he did with Abraham, uh, then he goes to Isaac, and once again, in a very conciliatory fashion, he deals with Isaac and says, like he did with his father, he said, let's all get along here. Let's be friends. You know, let's don't be deceiving one another and, and treat me right, and I'll treat you right. And they make this pact, this agreement. And then uh, Isaac starts wandering around where his father Abraham had gone before and seeing the wells that father Abraham had dug and he uncovers those wells because the Philistines have filled them in. We'll a little bit more on that later. Now then the 27th chapter is a rather detailed account of another encounter between Jacob and Esau. The first one being the issue of the birthright. This one being the issue of Jacob stealing the blessing away from Esau. Now those are the three stories that we'll be dealing with today. And I want to talk first just a little bit about the twins. And then I want to talk about the wells. And I just want to bring out to you in in that part one of the most important spiritual lessons that I have ever gleaned from the story of Isaac and the wells. And then we'll conclude with that stealing of the blessing. Now, typically, the firstborn would receive the greater blessing and the greater share of the inheritance. And here's how it would work. 
Let's just pick a number. If there were six sons born, then the inheritance would be divided by seven, and the firstborn would get two shares, and that would leave one share for each of the remainder. So the firstborn gets slightly more than the rest of them. Hence, the eldest son, blessed with his extra share above the others, is always recognized as being special to some degree. Esau is supposedly counted as the firstborn. But we have a problem here. Uh, when, when you have, you're looking for your firstborn and you have twins, then you have to figure out how to determine the firstborn. So it gets down to technicalities here. They both have the birthday on the same day, but one of them actually was delivered. One of them came out first. So it's this little technical thing that, well, he's the one that came out first. He is technically the firstborn. If you were Jacob, would you have a problem with that? Come on now, we were, we were both, we're twins. Just because he came out first, why is he special? So you understand there was probably a little bit of a rivalry as Jacob and Esau grow together, and Jacob comes to realize this is my twin brother, but they recognize him above me. So you understand the dynamic behind their stressed relationship. So in order to settle the estate, Isaac technically determines Esau to be his firstborn. We don't relate familiarly with that because our culture doesn't recognize in the same way the significance and the benefits of an elder son like this ancient culture did. Now, this author doesn't devote much time to the birth of the twins other than to establish uh, <clears throat> a couple of significant facts. And the first of all, that Rebecca had a difficult pregnancy. These twins were going at it with each other while they were still in the womb. And it was so upsetting and so disturbing that these, all this activity going on that Rebecca finally decides, uh, Lord, you tried to tell me something. That's, a, that's an odd conclusion to draw from the twin boys in such turmoil during the pregnancy. So uh, <clears throat> this, these overactive twins in the womb, uh, Rebecca says to the Lord, what, is, this is, what does it mean? Is, this, is there anything significant to this? And oddly enough, God says, as a matter of fact, you can just think about this, that the fact that they are already in rivalry signifies the fact they're always going to be like this. They started in the womb, and they're going to be like this for the rest of their lives. Second, as already mentioned, the technicality that one of them is considered the firstborn, Esau. Now, if there's anything else to learn from this brief uh, uh, narrative, and that is the babies were given certain names that were kind of inspired by the moment, uh, based on maybe certain traits or behaviors or circumstances, real or perceived. Esau was born, and he was a, a, a very hairy, red little baby. So they called him Red Harry. <laughs> it's, I mean, that's basically, that's basically the name of Esau. Hey, you didn't have to work hard at that one, did you? When my wife was giving birth to our third son, we didn't have a name picked out. 
As a matter of fact, we had two boys and we were convinced the third one was going to be a girl. So we had a couple girls' names ready to go. But lo and behold, we have a boy. And we're in the hospital room and she says, what are we going to name this? And I, I said, I don't know. So I went downstairs to that little uh, gift shop that's always in the hospital. And I started going through those little coffee mugs and nameplates and, and everything else that they have, you know. And I went through and I, I found one that said Dustin and I found another one that say, said Kyle. So I, I said, there's, there's two to choose from. So I went back up to the room and Ann's still woozy. She said, you, what, do you have any suggestions? I said, we got Dustin, we got Kyle. She says, Dustin, Kyle, I like that. So there you go. In her foggy stupor, she named our third son. And it's a good thing we did because that's what he answers to. So it all worked out real well. <laughs> now, Jacob, when Esau uh, is born and, and Jacob is born, he, this, this twin, Jacob, just by pure it has to be accident. How, how cognizant, how aware are fresh, newborn babies anyway? So he, he reaches out and he grabs a hold of uh, Brother Esau's heel. And they look at that and they said, there's a name right there. Supplanter. One who catches somebody by the heel and tries to trip them up. So one gets called Red Harry and the other one gets called Supplanter. One who trips people. So you got Jacob and Esau. The names came easy in those days if you just paid attention. And then immediately after documenting the birth of these boys, the author moves quickly to the next narrative, which is suddenly they're grown. And Esau's a hunter. And Jacob is not. And Esau goes out hunting, doesn't have any real success and comes home and says he is just dying of starvation. Now probably a little bit of hyperbole there but nevertheless uh, we take into consideration maybe, maybe he is not feeling well. Maybe he is very weak with hunger. I don't know to what extent but anyway he's hungry or he thinks he is. And Jacob has uh, a nice pot of stew on and Esau comes in and, and smells what's cooking, and he wants some of that. Now, Jacob the cheat, <clears throat> Jacob the one who reaches out and grabs people by the feet and trips them up. Jacob, the one, he's living up to his name because he recognizes right now he sees an opportunity. He knows his brother well. And Jacob merely makes the proposition, I will sell you a bowl of my stew. Esau doesn't have much to give for it, but the price is high. And Esau says, what do you want for it? He said, I'll take your birthright. Now, this, the reason that this is significant is it shows you how desperately imprisoned Esau is by his carnality. How much a slave he is to his appetite and his passions. Because it doesn't seem as though as fast as the story, story moves that he, he batted an eye. You know, uh, you want my birthright? You've got it. I want a bowl of stew right now. I'm dying. And because of the way this came about, obviously in this point, <clears throat> Esau 
loses his birthright. Now, there's a tremendous import and impact of that short little story. Uh, I, could, I could blow this up for 15 or 20 minutes and really pump it for all it's worth, but I think you've got the gist of this. Esau has traded off the most valuable thing that he possessed for something that would last him till tomorrow, until the digestive system had done its thing, and it's, it's over. It's history. There's nothing left of it. I'm going to leave that right there for now. Just keep in mind the loss of the birthright. And I want to move to the 26th chapter. It's fully devoted to Isaac. I have already des- described to you how the situation of Isaac parallels the uh, circumstances of his father. Their encounter with King Abimelech, their peace treaty with King Abimelech, the, the misrepresenting their, their wives. Abimelech saw Isaac uh, getting a little frisky with his wife, with Rebecca. And, and this king's no dummy. He says, men just don't do this to their sister. He said, there, there's something going on here. So he confronts him. And he said, this is not your sister, is it? Why did you, why did you tell me this is your wife? So as a result of this, uh, obviously, Abimelech goes through the same thing of, you know, let's, let's make a peace treaty and let's, let's be upright and forthright and honest with each other and let's try and get along and I'll let you dwell in this land. <clears throat> that brings us to uh, Isaac now discovering and, and recovering all of the wells that his father had dug. Every time he came to a well dug by Abraham, he discovered the Philistines had filled it in. So he's got to dig this thing out again. And he complains to Abimelech, you know, all my father's wells, your people are filling them in. And Abimelech establishes an agreement that I'll, I'll make sure nobody gives you any trouble. So he's, he's running around here digging these wells, and he digs a well and gives it a name and moves on, and digs a well and gives it a name and moves on, and his own people are fighting over uh, the, the access to the wells and rights to the wells. He just keeps redigging wells and keeps moving on until he finally comes to the last well, and he digs it. Now, there's a lot of good sermon material in this, and I could very easily make my entire sermon just out of this one thing, but I, I want to move right to what I feel is the most important thing I want to share with you this morning. One of the most powerful spiritual lessons I've ever had in my life. It came as a result of reading this passage and allowing the Holy Spirit to use this story to teach me something personal. When I was going through one of the greatest trials and difficulties in my entire ministry. Isn't it interesting how God can minister to us through his word and teach us spiritual lessons from passages that those lessons were never specifically intended by the author. They were just putting down history. They were just documenting accounts. But when the Holy Spirit takes something from Scripture and teaches you something from it, you never forget that. That is deeply personal. That is deeply powerful. So here it is, for what it's worth. I was in the midst of a five-year-long battle in in a church I pastored. 
a church that I have mentioned before that was filled with literally rampant immorality and corruption. It seemed like every time I started to get a handle on one little fire, another fire popped up over here. It seemed like whenever I handled one immoral problem that had happened, I uncovered two or three other immoral problems behind it. I couldn't get my board to get behind me. I couldn't understand why whenever you're dealing with the, the adultery and the fornication and the garbage that had gone on this church that my board would sit on their hands and do nothing to help me in trying to weed this garbage out. And as time went on, I began to discover it's because my board members had skeletons in their own closets. They would not address the issue with others because they themselves in their own families had issues. A deacon's daughter having an affair with the youth pastor. A deacon's wife having an affair with the pastor. A deacon himself having an affair with another woman. It just, it, the, the filth, the garbage, the, it was wretched. It just kept, no wonder I'm not getting any help from these people. They don't want their own lives exposed. For five years I fought this. I thought I was about to go crazy. I was having a hard time getting a handle on where, where is the bottom? Where do you get down to where you're digging out the corruption? You finally hit some good uh, bone and some good flesh where you can start regrowing this. It just seems so deep. And I was exhausted. All I wanted to do is just pastor normal church problems. <laughs> I didn't want to fight any more fires. I didn't want to slay any more dragons. But this was not once a year. This was not once a month. This was day after day and week after week. And as I dug and pursued and tried to work against this, I literally had hate mail dropped through my mail slot in my door at the office. A letter would come through. Uh, you, you know on TV how they have these letters where they cut letters out of magazine and paste it together? <laughs> I felt like I was getting this because it was an anonymous letter that was, was printed and no name signed to it. Just to the pastor. Dear pastor, we hope you burn in hell. Thank you very much. I literally had them tell me to my face, we would rather have an adulterer for a pastor than to have you. And that was the problem as the previous pastor had been involved in multiple adulterous affairs in that church. We'd rather have him than to have you. See, this is what I was fighting. This was what was getting me wore down. It didn't seem like there was any end. Five years, I didn't think I was making any progress. The church got together and literally voted me out. The district, 25% uh, of the people got together, petitioned the district to come up and hold a re-vote. The district came up, held a re-vote, and I got back in by a couple of votes. And I asked the district, you want me to take a church that just got through telling me, we don't want you here. And they said, you are closer to resolving the problem in this church than any pastor we've had in years. Would you please consider staying? I don't know what got into me. But I stayed. 
I was tired of the stress. I was tired of the conflicts. I was tired of the hate campaigns. I was tired of the rumors they were trying to spread on me. I'm fairly certain that I was struggling with depression. Some form, some degree. There was not a trace of joy in my life. I did not enjoy pastoring. I did not enjoy that church. I did not enjoy that community. There was no joy. And I want to tell you something, people. One of the hardest things in life is to try and live any day without any joy. Now, we all have a lot of stress and a lot of conflicts, but if there's little islands of happiness and joy, it can carry the day for you. My wife and I in the ministry, we go, we go through a lot of things, but all we have to do is sit down and start counting some blessings in our life. All we have to do is count, look at our family, look at our grandchildren. Grandchildren are very curative. They'll heal a lot of things in your life. And we start counting our blessings, and it carries the day for us. No matter what else we're facing, there is this little bit of joy. I didn't have any joy. I didn't have any grandkids either. <laughs> and day after day, trying to put one foot ahead of the other to go to that office. The former pastor had found out I was trying to deal with the mess he left behind. He gave me a personal phone call. He didn't like his business being divulged. He said, I'm going to be out there in three days to break your neck. I said, I guess you know where the office is. <laughs> what else can you say? <laughs> Threats, struggles, trials. I started trying to figure out how do you get some joy? I have no strength. Lord, I need strength. But my dilemma is I don't even have the strength to pray for strength. Now you know when you're really at the bottom. I don't even have the strength to pray. And I started calling my friends that I could trust, somebody I could bounce things off of. And I could say, tell me about joy. I don't understand joy anymore. I thought as a pastor I knew what joy was. So somebody tell me about joy. And they thought it was a difficult question. Oh, I don't understand what you're asking. I said, I, explain joy to me. As, as born-again Christians, don't we have joy? Why don't I feel anything? Is joy so, so nebulous that, that you can have it and it, and it has no, you, you can't sense it? So what good is it if it's joy but you don't feel anything? You know, your joy is not... I, it's supposed to be circumstantially based. It's not because things are going well in your life you have joy. It's supposed to be abiding joy, uh, uh, abundant life, things that carry you through those dark moments. And I thought I was serving the Lord, and I was going through dark moments, and nothing was carrying me. And I thought, you want to talk about feeling forsaken? Tell me about joy. What, what is this about this joy that I read about in the Bible that, that godly people, the children of God, are supposed to have this abiding peace and this abiding joy, and I don't have it, and I don't know how to pray to get it. Nobody can answer my questions. I read everything I could in the Bible about joy. I read we're supposed to be able to have joy in the midst of our difficult trials. I read we're supposed to rejoice whenever men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. I read all about that and it didn't mean anything to me. I knew joy was not the same as happiness. But I didn't have happiness either. 
It can't be a colorless, tasteless quality that never manifests itself in some ways in our emotions or feelings. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so you may have overflow with the hope of the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Praise the Lord, but not for me. This and so many other passages seem to imply that I'm supposed to have joy under the worst of circumstances. This long, dark, depressing process that I, I endured and nobody could give me any, any, any answers. And then I, I read this story of Isaac. And this is what the Holy Spirit gave me. Not that the author intended it, but this is what the Holy Spirit gave me. That as Isaac went around digging, redigging, reopening the wells of Abraham, his father, and I was wondering, where's the joy? The Holy Spirit likened it to the wells. He said, the water's there. All they had to do is get the garbage out. And it made sense to me what the Holy Spirit was saying to me. Where's the joy? Where's the joy? And the Holy Spirit was telling me, it's in you. The enemy has covered it up with the garbage. Now, the garbage came from several different, it came from all of my enemies piling the garbage on me. It came from my own depression. It came from my doubts and my fears. It came from, there was garbage there. So now that I knew the joy was, was there under the garbage, I knew I could at least do something. I could start digging the well out. If I got it out, I would find the joy. Now, I don't know if it means anything to you or not, but I want to tell you the enemy will cover up the things in your life and make them seem inaccessible, make them seem like they're not even there. But if you'll get the garbage out, whatever it takes, get your doubt out, get your despair out, quit letting what other people say discourage you, and just start trusting the Lord, eventually you're going to strike the well. The wellspring, it's going to come up. You'll find it was already there. Don't let the enemy cover up your joy. Yes, we do have joy as abiding Christians. It's sometimes it's just piled under a lot of stuff you've got to get out of there. I cleaned out the rumors. Quit paying any attention to them. I cleaned out all the hatred. I cleaned out all the bitterness that was growing in me. I rejected the bitterness that was against me, and I went to that Matthew 5. Happy are you, blessed are you, when people will insult you, revile you, persecute you, say all manner of evil against you falsely. For great is your reward in heaven, because that's the same thing they did to the prophets. I cleaned it out. I finally found the joy that God has invested in everyone. That's what the story of Isaac's well did for me. I want to move to the last chapter. And this is an interesting chapter because as, as brief and truncated as that chapter 25 was about the birth of the twins and the loss of the birthright, I, the, the story is just a little bitty short story, zip right through it. 27th chapter is devoted in detail to this, this sophisticated plan that Rebecca 
and Jacob came up with to steal Esau's blessing. The story of the birthright is well known. We're pretty familiar with that. As a matter of fact, in the, in the New Testament, there's a reference back to the story of the birthright. And the writer of Hebrews says in the 12th chapter, 16th verse, see that no one is A, sexually immoral, or B, godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. The writer of Hebrews called out Esau and designates him as a profane or godless person. It took a profane person to trade a birthright for one meal. Selling the birthright did not make Esau a profane person. It took a profane person to do something like that. He was already profane. Normal people don't do that. Esau wasn't normal. Something was terribly wrong when he valued one meal above his inheritance. He had a twisted sense of value. He was a man driven by his carnal appetite. And here's another subtle indicator of the type of character Esau was. I, I just want to read from the 25th chapter. It says, then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. Now notice rapid fire <clears throat> verbs. He ate, he drank, he got up, he left, and he despised. The first four are just kind of normal. But when you put despised your birthright in the same sentence, in the same breath as everything else that was normal, it was just normal for him to be a despicable person. He despises as easily as he eats, as he rises up, as he walks away. And on piggybacking on the story of the birthright is the story of the robbed blessing. And it's got some elements that's hard to understand. Isaac is losing his faculties to some degree. He believes with all of his heart he is dying. And in that culture, it was important that the father would pass on the blessing to the eldest son, to the profane one. So Isaac, believing his time to be short here on earth, calls Esau in. And he says, I want to give you my blessing while I still have my faculties. Go out and kill some wild game, bring it back, cook it up for me, and let's have a feast. Because a feast-type ceremony would be typical to go along with the ceremony of giving the blessing. So it was all perfectly in order in this culture. Go out and, and make up a, a, a big meal and cook it up, and I want to, under those circumstances, celebrate this moment of passing on the generational blessing to you. So Esau sets out, the mighty hunter, goes out to get him a, a deer or something. Rebecca is aware of what Isaac is preparing to do. She has overheard, and she immediately gets Jacob and says, we have an opportunity here, because uh, Rebecca evidently is partial 
to Jacob like Isaac is partial to Esau. And so mother's pulling for this son, dad's pulling for this son. And she conspires with Jacob this, this incredibly sophisticated plot where they're going to steal the blessing. She says, now Esau has gone hunting. He'll be gone for a while. Meanwhile, we're going to dress you up like Esau. And Jacob and Esau are not very much alike. They are fraternal twins. About the only thing they have in common is parentage. It seems like they've got different interests, different hobbies, different personalities. Their, their, their looks are different. And, and Esau is a ruddy, rough kind of a character. And Jacob is smooth and suave. And they, they're so different. How in the world are they going to pull this off? They're taking advantage of Isaac losing his faculties. His, his eyesight is going. His hearing is going. Things are not sharp in Isaac. So uh, Rebecca says, I think, I think we can do this. Can you imitate Esau? And Jacob is able to speak. I mean, they're brothers after all. He, he can imitate Esau fairly well. She says, very, very good. I will get some of Esau's clothes and we'll dress you up like Esau. Well, Isaac's eyesight must have been pretty deteriorated that he cannot see the face and know the difference. So they're banking on this, you understand. And, and then she says, uh, I know that you're not rough and ruddy like him, but I can fix that. I'm going to make some goat skin <laughs> that you can put on your hands and your arms. And if he happens to touch you, he touches goat skin and he'll think it's Esau. Now think about this people. Esau's got skin like a goat. So she covers him with goat skin. He changes his voice. She prepares this great meal and very quickly the meal is there. It's ready and Jacob representing himself as Esau goes in and says in his Esau voice, Dad, I'm back. And Isaac immediately is suspicious. He said, how did you kill an animal, bring it back, dress it, and cook it so fast? Something just doesn't add up. But he kind of sidesteps that issue. And for some reason, Isaac lets him. So Isaac uses his senses. He uses logic. How did you get back so fast? Can it really be you? He uses sight. Eh, what little bit of eyesight it, it looks a little bit like him. He uses the sense of touch. He reaches out and touches him and catches the goat skin. Yeah, that's, that's Esau. Nobody, nobody has skin like Esau. And then he, he says, come near me and he pulls Jacob in close to him and catches a whiff of Esau's laundry and he, he breathes and whew, he said that's Esau nobody smells like Esau this guy's gamey 
and all of his senses testify to him it must be Esau. Finally, he's convinced. Isaac grabs a hold of Jacob and gives Jacob Esau's blessing. Ah, he says, the smell of my son, like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine, and may nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. And that blessing was fulfilled in Jacob. Now, we have a hard time understanding this, because why would God allow Isaac to mistakenly give such a blessing to the wrong son and allow it to be fulfilled? That was intended by Isaac for Esau. Why would God allow it? What power? We, this is the thing that probably I question most. What power did they really have in pronouncing a blessing that they actually could make it happen on the wrong person? See, we have all of these probing questions. How does that really work? Or is it just the fact that God had intended to bless Jacob all along and not Esau? And by some providence, God had inspired Isaac to speak these prophetic words to the right person. And that's most likely. God didn't change his plans. It's not like God saw Isaac make a mistake and God says, well, you've messed it up now. I've got to give it to him. I was going to give it to Esau. No, it really came all into compliance with God's will to begin with. So Jacob got the blessing. And that's the way his life and his heirs played out with this abundance. And Esau did not have such a blessing. But here's what it comes down to. Here's the reason that it, God was justified in allowing Isaac to give the blessing to Jacob. Here's the reason God was justified in allowing Jacob to be blessed with what Isaac thought should be Esau's blessing. It all comes down to this. is because Esau had disqualified himself. Esau was not worthy, and God is not going to allow that kind of a blessing to pass on to somebody who is not worthy. Now, Jacob was not perfect, but Esau had done something that had established himself as being totally unworthy of that kind of a blessing. He could not be trusted with the heirship because he couldn't be trusted with a birthright. If you would sell your birthright for a bowl of porridge, why in the world shall I allow the heirship to pass to you? You've disqualified yourself. You have not proven yourself trustworthy. That's the reason it passed to Jacob. He did not value his spiritual heritage. One commentator observes that even King Saul had the kingdom ripped in two and apart. And, and it was because he failed to honor his spiritual heritage. And look what Esau forfeited because he did not honor and value his spiritual heritage. 
a number of you grew up in a Christian environment. Perhaps a number of you did not. For those of you who grew up in a Christian environment, you have a type of spiritual heritage that those who did not grow up in a Christian home do not have. That doesn't mean that people who did not grow up in a Christian environment or Christian home do not have a spiritual heritage. Every one of us here today have a spiritual heritage. That heritage was brought to us by virtue of Christianity that was preserved from the time that Jesus started this movement. It's been preserved through the centuries. Emperors have tried to stamp it out. The kings have tried to crush it. But it has passed from generation to generation. And to this generation has been passed the heritage of the faith of Jesus Christ. You are an heir to that. And you have a responsibility because of that. You have a heritage, maybe from your family, but maybe not. But you do have a heritage through the church. You have a heritage through Christianity. There are those who mock Christianity and call us some sort of an antiquated relic. And they are despising a great her spiritual heritage when they do that. There are some who think that the Bible is outdated and irrelevant. And if they do so, they despise a great spiritual heritage. Most all of you have a Bible in your home. That's a spiritual heritage that's been preserved and handed to you at the cost of the blood and the lives of countless martyrs who preserved it for you. That's a spiritual heritage. Those who long to scrub God from our schools, from our government, from our capital. They are despising a great spiritual heritage that we all as Americans have been given. And when they do that, they despise their spiritual heritage. Those who think the church is just an irrelevant dinosaur and no longer an important part of our culture and our society, they despise a great spiritual heritage. And those who despise their spiritual heritage cannot be trusted with the great inheritance we have available through Jesus Christ. Do not despise the spiritual heritage. Would you bow your heads?